the subject for the evening talk is healing of the earth. In this talk with you this evening, I would like to speak with you for a little while about some of the concerns of the Green Movement, the International Green Movement, and some of the ways and responses, if not responsibilities, in fact, to some of the perceptions and understandings and information which is becoming increasingly more available to us. In recent <coughs> years, there has been a debate, we might say, taking place within the international movement, green movement, of what you might say constitutes some of the priorities, some of the major concerns which need to be addressed and therefore need to be uh, implemented and to make changes personally, socially, economically, politically. And we might say that the concerns fall into four or five major regions, each one of itself serious and put together only adds to the concern. One of the concerns is the greenhouse effect. Another concern is the hole in the ozone layer. Another concern is the destruction of the tropical rainforests. Another concern is acid rain. Another concern is the pollution which is taking place in the air, the seas, the rivers, and on the land. And what has been taking place in these concerns which affect all life forms throughout the entire planet in different ways and to different degrees is how can these concerns be addressed? Should there be, within these concerns, a prioritizing of them? And I would just like to specify a little bit about each one for those of you who perhaps are not so familiar with the ecological balance, the way the system works and integrates with each other. So, for example, with the ozone layer, which serves as a kind of blanket giving protection to life on Earth from the intensity of the ultraviolet rays emitting from the sun. Scientists and activists have been warning since the early 1970s that the continued use, particularly of CFCs, the destruction of the rainforests, will bring pressure to bear on this blanket through the release of these chlorofluorocarbons into the atmosphere. And as was predicted two years ago in Antarctica, a British team observed and recorded that this, there was this hole in the ozone layer in Antarctica 
above Antarctica, it was growing, and within a year it had reached the size of the United States. It was then found that another area in the Arctic region, above the Arctic region, was also appearing and the same kind of threat was taking place. Which means that the blanket removes from us the protection from these rays and of course makes life particularly and acutely vulnerable to various cancers. It was then also being, and is still being explored amongst green scientists and activists, a different phenomena distinct from the hole in the ozone layer known as the greenhouse effect, in which through the use or abuse, shall we say, of carbon dioxide and its release not having an opportunity to be released through the Earth's atmosphere, becomes entrapped in the Earth. Again, in part due to the massive um, releasing of uh, pollutants through the Industrial Revolution over the last 150 years, through the releasing, the destruction of the tropical rainforests, meant that these carbon dioxides, not having an, an escape route, can contribute and is contributing to the increase in the Earth's temperature. And it is recorded, it is felt that it is no coincidence that the hottest years which have taken place since records began of average Earth temperatures have been in the years 1981, 1983, 1986, 1987, and 1988. And the concern is that if the increase continues, as it has done, it's gone up a degree in a hundred years, which is unprecedented since before humanity began, that it will trigger uh, a change, dramatic changes in climate, dramatic changes in the balances of the oceans and the rivers, and we could see changes and catastrophes unparalleled. One of the connecting links with all of this is the destruction of the tropical rainforests. There's been a great deal of work which is taking place amongst green activists around the world and scientists in this particular field. Some of us have had the immense joy of being able to be in a tropical rainforest, which, of course, is where our earliest home on Earth originates. 60,000 years ago, you and I had our being in the tropical rainforest. That is our natural home from earliest times. The destruction of the tropical rainforests through the last 30 years seems to be in causing immense imbalance in our whole system. And as we know and see, where there is protest, there is often risk to life. And the most recent example of that wonderful activist 
Chico Mendes in working in Amazonia, working for the rubber planters, working non-violently to tr protect the tropical rainforest just a few days before Christmas was brutally murdered. This man had just been in London just a few weeks before to receive an award from the UN and his life had been threatened many times for this and they've killed him. And in the destruction of the tropical rainforest, the various motives which are underway, one of the major reasons for its destruction is using the rainforest, particularly of Amazonia, for cattle ranching in order to provide hamburgers for the US. And in the figures which uh, have shown and being revealed, in a in very simple way which science and computers can now show that each time a person eats a hamburger, often out of a box of uh, harmful uh, chemicals, that the amount of forest, tropical rainforest, which is being destroyed for a single hamburger is about the size of one's kitchen to eat a single hamburger. And this destruction of the tropical rainforest, I remember speaking about it several years ago here in this hall, and I was saying in 1980 that on average one species becomes extinct each hour, sorry, each day, it's 1980, through this destruction of the forest. A few years ago I was saying that the rate has ex now accelerated to one species every hour. And I came here last year and I said that that rate is now accelerated to one species every half an hour. Such destruction is taking place that at a recent lecture of, um, by, given by Dr. James Lovrock, who's known for his Gaia hypothesis, we were attending the Henrietta and I, the Schumacher lectures in Bristol, and he was analyzing for us his perceptions of the situation, and he said that unless we, and particularly we who live in the industrialized world, change, the destruction is taking place at such a rate that early into the next century, some of the effects which scientists are predicting will come home to us tragically and dramatically. So this we see in the world which we have around, and what has been taking place amongst the many other is issues which are taking place, such as um, the acid rainfall, such as the simple fact that two and a half billion people in 1950 lived on the Earth. This figure went past the five billion point last year. So this increase which is taking place and the destructiveness which is taking place is part of the world that we are living in. It's not some other world, it's the world which is your home and my home and the home for countless living beings. And in this information and knowledge which becomes available to us and the effects of it, one in five people in the West will experience cancer 
during the course of her or his life, in experiencing the effects and influences of all of this, the Green Movement began asking itself, as I mentioned, does, does something need to be prioritised here? And what we have in the movement, in the protest movement at present, is basically a number of single-pointed issues. Single issues, by necessity, being focused upon. But the shift which is taking place in the exploration of our concern with the suffering of life, all sentient life now, so even the liberation movements, the movements for uh, awakening have to expand itself outside of human concern. But what we have at the present time in our exploration of this situation is not so much prioritizing though necessary and urgent as it is, but an awakening going on to the interconnectedness which relates all of this together and particularly relates all of this to the way we live. The way you and I live and the what is occurring in the world around are not two separate issues and is coming about to be in the international green movement, in the spiritual movement, in the liberation movements of the earth, an awakening to the relationship of the world and the individually are inseparably married, inseparably bound to each other. And what happens in your life and my life makes its impact every day in this world that we live in and this world that we live in makes its impact on our being, on our bodies, on our consciousness, on our heart, on, our, on who we are. And so what the movements are asking of us in our activity when it comes to the personal level when it comes to our relationships and our social relationship, it comes down, I feel, to a number of specific questions which we have to look at seriously, compassionately, carefully, to see what's appropriate. And sometimes it seems to me that when it comes down to very simple questions and very basic questions about life and earth and existence, is what am I prepared to give up? What am I prepared to do without so that life can unfold in all its immensity and its, and its diversity? <coughs> and it seems to me, in, in with regard to our looking and our questioning, that when we speak of spiritual and social and political and economic, what we can be speaking of is how we live. What are the kind of values which you and I hold? How can we implement them? And to be, as we are aware in any kind of inquiry, what are the forces of social conditioning which prevent me contributing to the liberation of people and planet. If we're going to be speaking about struggle, 
and the efficacy and the value of struggle, part of that struggle is, am I going to be nothing but a social product? To live in a way in this world which all that I end up being fit for is producing and consuming, or am I going to take courage in both hands, take risk with heart and mind and body, and see another way of being and living in this world which is not just satisfying the forces of producing and consuming. That is an immense challenge for a human being to say that the forces of social factors, the negative forces I'm talking about, obviously the, the harsh, exploitive, destructive forces, that we something inside of us needs to be responding to that and say, I'm not going to live this way anymore. And once we start exploring and even just considering that, to consider what it means for the movement for liberation, then every area, every stone of concern may need to be turned up and looked at in a fresh way. Everything is up for questioning. It might mean looking at our livelihood. It might mean examining our relationship to money and the future. It might mean looking at our relationship to material world and the forces of accumulation. It might mean looking at how much do we drive the car if we have one, how much we use the aeroplane and the access to that, and whether in our using of transport, in using the so-called benefits of industrialism, whether or not the use of that is such that it outweighs what it's being used for. Do you understand what I mean? One can just use for quick convenience just use because basically one is too lazy not to use. And then we might say, well, what I use, the vehicles that I use, the machinery that I use, am I willing to take the risk and actually examine what the effects of this is? So that something deep inside of us says, growth and expansion and having more and possessing more, if there's going to be a change, that has to change towards thinking, believing and living in a sustainable way. Thinking, living, believing and acting, responding that we live in a sustainable way. It might be that in our examination and leaving no stone unturned, we might be needing to look at our relationship to diet. And we might be asking ourselves, what do I need to let go of and give up and do without? Information is available to us. The size of the zafus, which the zabutans, that means these mats which you are sitting on. In factory farming, 
there are three or four chickens who spend their entire existence on those, trapped in those, egg-producing, being used up. 550 million animals and birds are eaten every year in Britain. So when we look at our relationship to the world, when we say, yes, I am a conscious human being, yes, I wish to be informed, yes, I wish to have to look at life, yes, I wish to leave something for my children and grandchildren, then in that, we're needing to give each other an enormous amount of support. We need to challenge each other. We need to generate the information. And I think there is an unprecedented challenge to us. I don't think the challenge, that even at the time of a hundred years ago, or a thousand years ago, or two and a half thousand years ago, when the Buddha walked on the face of the earth, compares to the challenge of a whole new level of awakening. And we haven't got, it seems to me, the history of resources, of insights from generations of old religious literature. It's become, it seems to me, somewhat dated by the circumstances in which we find ourselves in this time and age. The planet is drawing, it seems to me, is by necessity drawing itself together. It's a rather a small home. We might ask ourselves in all, of, in all of this, and the many other issues which face us, which are not even mentioned in terms of peace and social justice and these other equally significant factors, is where are we amidst all of this? What, what, what does that mean for me as a human being living and breathing and having our experience on the, on the face of this earth. And it seems, <coughs> it seems to me, in exploration of this, there are a number of aspects to this which I feel are important, which require from us some reflection. And I think it takes its place in the exploration both in the immediacy of our daily life, in terms of how the world is just around us, and what we can do to keep alive the spirit of liberation and hope for people. And I'd just like to take a number of specifics again in relationship to, to that. One of the areas which I feel is important is the field of information. Just recently, I was listening to, some friends had sent me, some tapes. If I recall rightly, the man's name is John Stockwell. He was a member of the CIA. He has been exposing the CIA. I was rather reminded when I 
I may say, arrived here. I see your new president was a former director of the CIA. And, and one of the things which he was pointing out, he said that the information, in this case about activities, subversive activities, etc., etc., is available. And what he's been encouraging his audiences to do, and if I may say, would also like to, is that one at times needs to be very selective about what you read. And I can say this as a former news reporter, international news reporter, and there used to be a one line which used to comment on, which was, and you frequently see this, expressed in the newspapers and in the magazines and so forth, basically underlyingly saying, never let the truth stand in the way of a good story. And that message frequently, it seems to me, is what is being carried in the, on the media, TV, radio, and ordinary daily newspapers, which are unable because of time restraints, to probe deeply into issues. So one thing which I feel is very important is, as Stockwell says, to find the means of information which help shed light on issues. And one's got to probe for those. One's got to be connected with organizations and groups who have that information which can inform us and inform us, we can respond to it. For example, a book was published in the autumn in Britain called The Green Consumer Guide, published by Golantz, who have done lovely publishing works over the years. And within the space of two months, this guide which says what when you go into the supermarket, really look at what you're buying. Really look at what's on the label. Really look at the source of origin of that foodstuff. Make considered choices. And the food, this Green Consumer Guide does that with every material item that you and I might use. Within two or three months of this book being published, it went straight to the top of the bestsellers in Britain. First two months, 70,000 copies were sold. So I would say that within the public, within people's concern, there is a small but growing interest and activism which demands of us, as it has done of old, of an awakening to reality, an awakening of reality which affects what we do, what we buy, what we choose, what we think about, what we value. So information, I think, is a very important resource. It's not easily available. One has to go and find out what it is, where it is, and there are people and literature around. The second area, I think, for change, for hope, for liberation, is in the human resources which are available to us. Let me take, take one or two examples here. There's been, and to tremendous credit here in the uh, 
US and noticeably on the east and west coast, wide diversity of exploration, of inner exploration. It's, it's almost like it seems to me in last couple of generations, perhaps with Freud and Jung as major um, instigators, that in the West we suddenly realize this century that we had a mind. <laughs> we didn't know it before, but we found this out sometime during this century. And from that original realization, then has come about a tremendous diversity in exploration of methods and techniques in spirituality, in psychotherapy, in body work, in transformations of consciousness, which have helped people considerably. This, to me, however, has not always and adequately addressed some of the concerns and I think sometimes there has been within it a, a confusion, if I may say, in certain situations of social pressures and demands and therefore a kind of social philosophy, rather apparent, if I may say, in, here in America, and the use of psychological or meditative insights and a kind of mixing of the two together. One example of this is an idea very predominant here is that you, whoever the you is, can be anything you want. The world is out there for you to get what you want, do what you want, be what you want, etc. This view, very strong, the view of individualism, the substance kind of view, I think, has not been, in my experience here, adequately addressed. And sometimes it has given license very easily to the forces of selfishness, the forces of greed, the forces of what I want, no matter the cost. And we have seen particularly in this decade because of political, economic, social factors, almost an unparalleled license in the industrial world to going out and getting what you want and succeeding. Consumerism has had a rabid force running through society in Britain, in continental Europe, Australia, North America, etc., etc. And I think protest in life is not to deny the values of industrialism, but to ask ourselves, how much am I the victim of consumerism? The victim of it. How much am I trapped in this wretched cycle of existence? And it's not easy when the messages so articulated, so powerfully communicated through the media keep putting out to women and men and children again and again, morning, noon and night, 
that you are not good enough as you are. You will only be good enough when you have this, look like this, be like this, achieve this. And with it, there is this sickening number of role models being perpetuated, women of the year, men of the year, this, that and the other, which can be inspirational, but frequently can leave the feeling, I'm not like that, therefore I am not good enough. And in that anxiety, in that fear, in that insecurity, one starts driving oneself and the world to death. no easy matter in existence to say no. The most one peace activist said the most potent concept in the language is no and it's no easy thing to say that and find out what it means to be in the world free from the tyranny of consumerism. So we look at information we look at some of the values which have been conditioned into ourselves, which self dominates over connectedness. Another area, too, for our exploration in our looking into situations is in our daily life, as I mentioned yesterday evening, is I think this potent and in a way powerful opportunity for us to really make contact with each other. I think in my travels and in my uh, uh, hometown and in the times of just meeting with ordinary, everyday people, <coughs> what I find is that there is a growing awareness that people do sense something is seriously wrong, that we have gone off on a tangent which is harmful for all beings. And I, my conversation with people do recognize that. It might be small, but if we can be in touch with each other and make contact, the human, the personal contact stimulates change. It is a hopeless undertaking, condemning and judging. It's a hopeless activity, attacking particular <coughs> groups and organizations and putting them down for what they are doing. It's a typically human response to avoid responsibility and to generate blame. But what that tends to do is reinforce the fragmentation. What that tends to do when we are attacking whoever we are attacking is to make the person or the group or the multinational or the government or whoever it might be protect and defend their position even more. So sometimes when we are on the attack against others, we may not even realize it. We're actually reinforcing it. And as the old Chinese proverb says, he or she who attacks another defeats himself or herself. 
So I think this old strategy of attacking and defending, we have seen enough consequences of that to say we need the psychological insights that are available. We need the therapies which are available. We need the deep inner work which are available so that we can find ways to make changes, use the resources, the tremendous skills such as are available in this room, so that we come from a different place inside of ourselves to see a different world outside of ourselves. And I think that this marriage of the skills which are available amongst many of you here, if not all of you here, and at the inner level, have an enormous contribution to make. The scientists can give us the information for sure. The political analysis can tell us where the injustice and the unfairness is. Some of those people are certainly working hard on themselves simultaneously. But with us at ordinary, everyday, grassroots level, if there is to be liberation in the world from suffering, if there is to be hope, the responsibility for it is going to be with you and with me. To look outside of people like ourselves is to, I think, is to be living in a dream world. So this is where this bringing together, this uh, connectedness and solidarity and empathy with each other, grounding that with each other, so that we're not afraid of information. One of the things which is expressed a number of times in the small groups today, two things which affect the capacity to live wisely and act from the wisdom. One is the feeling of being overwhelmed. And the other is fear. I personally don't regard fear as having any usefulness whatsoever. I think it's <laughs> a superfluous emotion. To me, when I think of fear, it, fear means that inhibition, understandable, but that inhibition which prevents action. That's what fear is. It blocks the ability to respond. And a number of you in the small groups have mentioned about the way fear works, that it, it blocks, and the other is the feeling of being overwhelmed. feeling of being overwhelmed needs to be looked at very, very carefully. What is this feeling all about? What is the thought which confirms this feeling? Is one filling up one's life, so to speak, using metaphor, filling up one's life so much that it's one's the consciousness not able to cope. So then one might be once again back with the question, what am I prepared to give up, to do without, to let go of, so that I don't feel overwhelmed, so that I can experience a sense of space in a very spacious universe, and through that spaciousness, I can act. So if I'm feeling overwhelmed, I need to be asking myself questions about what's being done, which is too much, taking on board too much. 
And if I'm looking at fear, what is the fear about? Sometimes it's about fear of continuity. It going on like this and it getting worse. Or fear about discontinuity. It won't continue, etc. With fear of the feelings of being overwhelmed, if this kind of feeling which inhibits the liberation movement is operating in one's life, and if you see and you experience that you, there's not the inner resources, there's not the wisdom there, the clarity to cope with and work effectively with these kinds of feelings and emotions, then those who have some skill, those who have who work with these. This might be your friend, your partner, your neighbor, a colleague, conversation or whatever, or a specialist or whatever. Then one's got the responsibility to say, I need to address these fears. I need to see what's going on here. I need insight into this. I need to explore the feeling of being overwhelmed. And one takes that initiative. And if you perceive amongst the people that you work with, the same kind of feelings and responses, then one needs to, that needs to be brought right out into the open. These things, these difficulties, and all the accompanying urgencies, pressures, aggressions, reactivities, I think they frequently need to be spelt out in our life from an experiential viewpoint very, very clearly put things out in the open, we can do something. Keep it away and put it, keep putting it aside and putting it aside and putting it aside leads to stress. It leads to burnout. It leads to feeling so disheartened. So the human resources are invaluable ways for you and I to meet together, explore <coughs> together in different settings so that we can act fearlessly. And then information can flow, we can be resourceful with the information, we can be selective with the information, we can see what I need to do, what's appropriate in my daily life, we can feel, we can question and find more space. In that, the world opens up. The world itself opens up because we open up with it. And then the heart of spiritual life, of awakening and liberation, wisdom and compassion, are not something long down the road after doing millions of numbers of hours of sitting cross-legged with burning knees. <laughs> something much more immediate than that. Something which is equally present wherever we are. And, we, and I feel finally as humans we have particular responsibility because the environment cannot speak of itself unless we are receptive. The trees and the flowers, the, the forests and the fields and the nature can't speak of itself unless we are receptive. The animals and the birds and the fish and the and the creatures of the earth, they rely on us in a way to, to speak for them.
as we must also speak for each other. And then we then love and affection and friendship and respect and all the qualities that we, we love to receive, we also love to give. And in that respect, finally, I would say these are important days. These are important times in, in which we live. This is a situation which doesn't have a precedent to it. And that challenges each and every one of us. May all beings live with wisdom. May all beings live with compassion. May all beings see into life. So let's have a couple of quiet minutes together, shall we please?